today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Sad news, uh, as we found out yesterday, uh, here especially locally, but I think within the hockey community as well. The uh, the body of uh, ex-NHL goaltender Ray Emery was found in Hamilton Harbor yesterday. And, uh, well, Police Inspector Marty Schulenberg addressed the media. At about 2.50 p.m., the Hamilton Police, assisted by the Niagara Regional Police, recovered the body of a male uh, in the harbor here at Leander Boat Club. We also have confirmed that the identity of that male is Raymond Emery, 35 years of age, from Ancaster, Ontario. Uh, which sent shockwaves to an awful lot of folks. So many people in this community uh, knew Ray uh, as a player and as a resident, uh, some of them growing up, of course. He played his junior hockey here and went on to a, a very interesting NHL career. Scott Radley, the host of the Scott Radley Show, uh, heard here on CHML, and, of course, uh, sports writer for the Hamilton Spectator, joins us to uh, talk about this. Scott, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. It was kind of a punch to the gut when you heard this, wasn't it? It well, you know, these things are, when are they not, regardless yeah. of who it is, um, and whether it's a professional athlete or whether it's a professional celebrity and actor or whether it's just a 35-year-old person otherwise in good health. I mean, it's, it's yeah, his name and his, his career makes it stand out. But um, I, I think, you know, these things are, when, you, when you're 35 and you suddenly, suddenly die, it's, uh, it's a shock no matter who you are. You've talked to an awful lot of local celebrities. Did you ever have an opportunity to to meet Ray and talk with him? I did. Um, we had a complicated relationship. <laughs> he was when I was talking. Well, he was to him, he was a complicated guy. He was, and uh, back when I dealt with him, largely was when he was on his way up, and he was in the Ottawa Senators farm team, and he would come to Hamilton occasionally and play against the Bulldogs, and he had some. Uh, some you know some Ray Emery moments. He was a feisty fighter, pugilistic, short-tempered guy on the ice, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about the fact that so many people say that's not who he really was. But on the ice, that's who he was. And there were some moments that he had some moments at uh, cops that then cops Coliseum, and I don't know that he always liked the way I wrote about him back then as a player, but. Um, but as I say, I, I know a number of people, a bunch of people who know the man and say, you know, it, it's funny because just last week, Bill, I was writing something about Zach Ronaldo mm-hmm. and uh, leading into Zach Ronaldo's charity game. And Zach Ronaldo and Ray Emery, and, and I talked to Zach yesterday after this happened, and he says the same thing. He goes, they're very similar in a lot of ways, and that is on the ice, people have very strong opinions about them because of the way they play, which is not always pretty. Uh, it's, it's, it is at times rough. It is at times involving fighting. There are people who get some very strong opinions, but off the ice, they everything I keep hearing is these are wonderful people who do wonderful things. I mean, it's, it's ironic, or whatever the word is, that this happens hours after Emery is playing in Ronaldo's charity hockey game yeah um you know it's again you use the word complicated i think complicated is a very good word although you know uh, not as complicated as some who you look at in retrospect the end of their life and you go man i i I have a really hard time saying anything nice about that person not that kind of complicated a lot of people have a lot of nice things to say about Ray Emery, and so yeah, it, it complicated just in the public and private persona were two different things. Well, and it's it's interesting because as he went up through there, and you talked about those early days before he made it to the NHL, 
And and I remember some of the stuff that you wrote, and I remember some of the stuff that other people said about him, too. He was, uh, we can use all sorts of adjectives like feisty, competitive, and things of this nature. Uh, he pushed it to the limit. But it's not unusual, Scott, when you hear about things like this, to hear about that other persona off the ice. And Zach Ronaldo's an example of that. There's a guy who gives back to the community, and uh, by all accounts, anybody that I've talked to that knows him says he's a heck of a nice guy. Chris Nyland, the, the big tough guy from years ago, yep. who played in Boston, yep. well, Montreal, essentially, said one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Uh, and on and on it goes like that. So in other words, it, I, I don't know the psychology of it, whether it's one of these things where these guys just think that's the kind of person I need to be to be successful at that game. But uh, they, they obviously leave it at the arena. But he had a, a rather interesting career. You mentioned about his way on the way up. Uh, went to the Stanley Cup final with the Ottawa Senators in a very surprising year. Uh, and and I know that Eugene Melnick, the owner of the uh, the Senators, uh, had some very kind things to say about him yesterday. But he was controversial even within Ottawa. For I guess uh, the teammates apparently loved him, but I guess he always had some bumps with management from time to time. Well, again, th- you know, this was uh, this was the public versus private persona and the 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 balance that was that was out there. And so if you and I went back yesterday and I was going back through some of the old articles from back in the days when they were making that Stanley Cup run, and it was at that time again based on public behaviors and things that people were hearing there was some split opinion about you know is this guy the guy we want or need on the team he was playing great he was he was he was an outstanding goalie um but yeah there were some the some moments now what what you notice what i noticed as i was doing this is the number of things the number of times you heard about him and issues diminished as he went on he he, i mean there's no doubt that you know when he was a very young man um he was a different guy than when he was a a more mature man but how many times have you heard that about young athletes lots and and you know at one point i read an interview with him uh he did an interview with espn uh 2008 and he was even back then he was sort of reflecting on some of the things and one of the things he commented on and I'm paraphrasing, and I'm going to do a poor job of paraphrasing, but you can find the article online if you want to look it up. Um, he got a lot very quickly. When you get to the NHL, suddenly you have an awful lot given to you. You have an awful lot. Of, and he implied that, you know, that was a struggle to deal with having everything immediately. And, you know, some people just are able to handle that no problem, and other people it takes a little while. Um, but as I said, I, I know someone uh, very close who bumped into him just last week, and was uh, commenting on you know he had never met the, met Ray Emery before, and the you know when I talked to him the meeting the interaction was lovely. Ray Emery you know was was very interested in the person, very polite, happy to talk to him, um, you know I, like a very people very gregarious, outgoing people person none of the flash none of the stuff that you had heard of before so again you have these two stories that people are going to when they hear the name some people are going to remember those ottawa senators days the philadelphia flyers days the fights on the ice where he beat up Braden holtby and and other things and other people a lot of people around here and a lot of his friends are saying "Mm, you know what you got to look past that part of it because that's only a small part of who this guy was but there, there almost seem to be two NHL careers for Emery. 
Uh, there were those days, yep. that, that Ottawa day, of course, you know, when they, they went and they, well, they lost to Anaheim in the Stanley Cup final, but he played very, very well in that series. But Carey. even even while that was going on, there were stories about, I think, at least one, two incidents that I think I can recall uh, where Ottawa police were investigating him for some you know, behaviors, late night stops, you know, and things of this nature. Uh, and it went back and forth like this. And, and not too long after that, of course, he was gone. And and went overseas, I guess, to play some hockey, and maybe, maybe that was the time for reflection. But you're right; he he came back as a very mature individual, and and I almost had a second career, as you said, with the Flyers. I was on the Stanley Cup champion Chicago Blackhawks, which was obviously, I would think, the pinnacle of his professional career. Yep. Anyway, yep, brought the cup to Kineski's for a day, for yep. part of the day. For uh, when you talk about his two careers, that's another thing that uh, that a lot of people point to, and they said. Uh, Ray Emery had two significant injuries in his career. One was a wrist injury, uh, and one was a hip injury that was a more of a degenerative thing that was similar to what ended Bo Jackson's athletic career. It was the same kind of thing. And a lot of people comment on, you know, he doesn't get credit for what he did to get back and to be an NHL goalie again after fighting through that and rehabbing that and everything else. It speaks that, you know, they say we talk about his competitiveness fighting on the ice and playing goal and everything, but his competitiveness was also in fighting through the challenges of those injuries and getting back onto the ice and, again, winning a Stanley Cup ultimately with Chicago. Absolutely. And and, and as you say, I mean, everybody's career has, has a, a best-before date. And, of course, you know, after that, not too long after that, he's out of hockey, but uh, came back to his community. Uh, and uh, you're right, by all means and by all accounts, everyone I've talked to that has bumped into him, said he was a, a just seemed at peace with himself and everything seemed fine. But I, I, it's a classic story of, of, of a young athlete who gets a lot of money really soon and, and maybe does some things that they regret later on and thankfully survives it and, and can re- reflect back on that and say, well, that was then, this is now. And he was uh, in, the, in the second incarnation in the NHL with the Flyers and with the Blackhawks. He was a, a much different person. You know, obviously, he's always been competitive, but he just seemed to be uh, a different, more mature individual, really, which is not unusual for those. Uh, some of them crash and burn, and, and, and Ray fought through that. I, I've always wondered, and I'll never know, because certainly uh, I'm now at an age when no one's drafting me into any kind of pro sports league, nor do I have the talent to do it, but... I've always wondered how I would handle if somebody, suddenly I had millions of dollars and I was 19 or 20 years old. And I, and I, you know, I, I think all of us would, look, look, how many times have we seen stories of people who win the lottery? And it goes, you know, some people, they live a long, happy, productive life and they travel and they enjoy the winnings and share it with their family. Others, they completely crash and burn, Bill, when that money lands in their bank account because they have no idea how to do it. And I think it's a very similar thing. And I don't know how I would have dealt with it at 19 or 20. I was an immature kid at 19 and 20 years old. I may very well have done stupid things if you suddenly have everything. You can buy everything and you can, you're, you're famous and you've got people flocking around you. It, it's, it's not always, for all that we like to look at our athletic or celebrity, whatever, heroes, it's not always, I don't think, easy to deal with that stuff. It's a lot besides the pressure of being an athlete. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about Ray Emery at this point. I'm talking about anybody. It's a lot to have to deal with when you realize that these kids are basically the age where they've just finished high school. And so many things. And this is not, by the way, exclusive to hockey players. I mean, we see this no. with and guys in the NBA, uh, guys in, in you know the National Football League, etc. I mean, they get a lot of money. Uh, and, and welcome. We could get into the Johnny Manziel situation, I guess, if you wanted to go down that road. But it just seems that it happens more often than not. And and 
Uh, it's tragic when it does. Uh, it's it's a celebration when you know that, you know what, they got through that. And not all of them yeah. do. Some of them succumb to it, uh, to substance abuse and so many other things, and, and brilliant careers are cut short because of it. Uh, but Ray Emery is a guy who obviously dealt with his, his demons and whatever those things were, and his physical injuries, fought back and, and had a second shot at it and made the most of it. Yep, and I think, you know what, you mentioned a name. I bet Johnny Manziel could, he, I, don't, I don't know if he ever met Ray Emery, I doubt it, but I bet you that of all the people around here, he may be a guy who could tell that story the best and how difficult that is. And Johnny Manziel, I mean, again, a guy who a lot of people have a lot of opinions on, um, but what we're seeing here in Hamilton, if, if outward perceptions, if what we're hearing is true, if that's really the new guy, I think there are a lot of parallels between those two people. Uh, between Ray Emery and him. It, it certainly sounds like another person who figured it out, seemingly, seemingly, and had a better life when that was figured out, at least, you know, a, a life where many, many people around them just raved about the person and said, look, this, is a, this was a good guy. This was a good guy, and it's terribly sad what happened. Well, it's it's one of the stories, and I know you write about it an awful lot uh, in The Spectator and talk about it on your show here on CHML. Uh, because oftentimes we we just you know we we objectify athletes and just say well you know all that person is is about goals and assists or goals against average or points per game or whatever uh, they're human beings and and then they have the same frailties that, as all of us are trying to deal with and uh, sometimes it's it's exaggerated obviously by the huge amounts of money and the pressure that's involved in them and uh, and it's no wonder that uh, that some of them have so many problems dealing with this but this is a guy that that fought back and you know the odds because you've written about this, Scott, and I remember talking to Dave Andrichuk and, and and so many others about this. You know, how many? What's your shot of, as a as a kid playing minor hockey in Hamilton, of going and playing in the NHL? And, and Ray beat those odds. Well, and he beat them. What was interesting is he he did not have the. Um, now I wasn't following him at the time that he was really really young, but it, by everything I've read and heard and talked to, he really took the longest. Shot because he back as a kid, as a fourteen, fifteen year old, he tried out just for the Glanbrook Rangers and didn't make the team. Ended up going and playing in Dunville, making and getting drafted by the Sioux Greyhounds, who at that time the general manager was Kyle Dubas, now the GM of the Maple Leafs. Yeah. Um, went there, had a great OHL career, then got drafted by the Senators, but he did not have the uh, the story, like a lot of the kids who have come from around here and other places where, you know, he was a triple-A star and mom and dad had lots of money and put them through and all these things. I mean, this this was a guy who went the difficult route, made it. Once he got his chance, he made it. But it took a while to get that chance. Well, uh, it's a tragedy. Well, obviously a tragedy with anybody involved in this, but a sad end to a, a very interesting life. Scott, thanks as always. Great talking with you about this today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great one. Scott Radley. Of course, you can hear him every weeknight on the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's got a full schedule this week. He's going to be meeting with the uh, provincial premiers later. That's going to be an awful lot of fun. That'll be in New Brunswick. But speculation is also rampant that he will be announcing a cabinet shuffle probably around midweek, which seems to be... Almost something that you expect now when you're getting close to an election, a provincial election, federal election, whatever uh, the case might be. There's usually a, a kind of a shuffle just before that. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks. Is there some unwritten code someplace that when you're in government and you're heading towards an election, it's time to shuffle everybody around? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, 
Uh, I mean, governments have to uh, pay attention to, uh, you know, who might be leaving, for instance, in the uh, upcoming election. Uh, you know, there's uh, maybe a point in taking someone and uh, uh, who's unlikely to run but sitting in cabinet and uh, asking them to make space for someone else, I mean, which does two things. On the one hand, it allows you to, uh, you know, have regular turnover and so that you have new people being promoted and are able to, to take things over, and that doesn't all happen at once. And secondarily, there's probably some electoral visibility that comes from being uh, a member of cabinet, which can be used both to try and, and prop up someone who's maybe not a sure thing in their own riding, or if you want them to be around touring into a, you know, a particular area and uh, supporting other local campaigns, the fact of having minister of something attached to them may uh, make them a bit more of a draw and a bit more capable to drive votes in an election campaign. I wonder about that, because I'm looking at the past provincial election, and uh, there are only seven Liberals, of course, that were in power last time that were re-elected. Six of them were cabinet ministers. Can we read something into that? Well, it's hard to know which way uh, the the causality goes on that. I mean, did they survive because they had the extra visibility of being cabinet ministers, or were they seasoned pros, and that's why they were in cabinet in the first place, and they were therefore a bit better able to... Uh, uh, you know, they they developed a higher profile due to their skills and capacities. So, you know, it's hard to know exactly which way that goes. I, I presume if you're sitting on the back benches, uh, you know, of that Liberal government that had been there for 15 years, it maybe it was also, you know, a signal that you were not, if you like, the highest performer uh, in the party. So it's hard to know which way that goes. But, I mean, certainly, you know, at this time last year, we I think we were having this very discussion when uh, Ted McMeekin stepped mm-hmm. down. Yeah. Uh, and I think at the time we presumed he wasn't going to run again, and I think he might have presumed that himself uh, before changing his mind. And that would be the example of a, of a government wanting to have a kind of regular turnover. I mean, we've just had the World Cup, you know, which happens every four years, just like uh, our elections tend to. And it's kind of a similar story when you think, well, are these players going to be here in another four years? You, you know, the teams need to renew themselves and bring in fresh talent. And so similarly with cabinet, uh, you know, there's a, a benefit in terms of having uh, changes at several points over a four-year mandate. Obviously, the first time that any leader, be it a, a prime minister or a premier, has to go through this is, is after they get elected. Uh, and they've got to choose a cabinet. And now here we are, three years, almost four years into the mandate, uh, heading into an election. And as you mentioned, it's time for a revamp. Did they use the same criteria, Peter, that they did initially? Yeah, they have to use some of the same criteria. Uh, I mean, people will look at the cabinet and say, well, are the different regions and the different constituencies in Canada, are the major cities represented? Those kinds of questions will be asked. I think given the emphasis that Trudeau put on having uh, an equal number of women and men in his cabinet means that people will judge uh, you know, what he does on that grounds as well. So, uh, I mean, those criteria are still there, but then I think some more immediate ones come forward. I mean, looking to this election in a year's time to say, well, you know, do we have around here people who can go and help local campaigns uh, use the credibility and the visibility they get as being a minister uh, to uh, reinforce electoral prospects? And I suspect, too, I mean, Trudeau is saying, okay, well, what are the hot issues for the coming 12 months? Uh, when he swore in his original cabinet, he wasn't thinking about a renegotiation of NAFTA. He wasn't thinking about an Ontario provincial government that would be pushing hard against the current refugee policy. I mean, these are things where he'll want to ensure that he's got talents in cabinet uh, in those files uh, to ensure that they're well handled coming up to the election and don't cause embarrassment or a kind of leakage of votes and support uh, between now and next spring. You mentioned uh, that some of the people that may be shuffled around here may be people that aren't going to run again. What about competency? I mean, I I guess this happens with any cabinet and any government. You're always going to appoint so-and-so, and and then 
five, six months into it, find out maybe that was a mistake. Maybe they, they don't seem to be up to it. Uh, and there can be mini shuffles there, which causes all kinds of headlines and controversies. Some recover from it, some don't. Yeah, I mean, we have seen with this government relatively few uh, shuffles. And, I mean, there was maybe Kent Herr being uh, moved out for, uh, you know, Trudeau feeling that there was an ethical problem there. Uh, early on, uh, the Minister of Human Resources Development got shuffled out in the sort of first year. But for the most part, Trudeau uh, seems to feel that the people he's placed in the different positions are doing uh, a sufficient job. I mean, Christia Friedland was also, I guess, moved around to sort of play an important role around the trade agenda. But, you know, people you might have thought have been causing a lot of difficulties for his government, you know, such as Bill Morneau, who seems to regularly draw criticisms uh, and maybe not being the sort of the most confident or the most uh, solid finance minister we've seen in the past, you know, 25 years. Nevertheless, Trudeau seems to be very loyal to keeping him there, maybe in part because there's no one else in his in his uh, caucus who really has the Bay Street credentials that Morneau has, and that's important for him to signal to Bay Street that their views are being looked after in his government. But uh, yeah, there's been very uh, little changes in terms of saying, well, th- these people really aren't working out. We need to uh, we need to, to change who's there. I mean, even someone like uh, Bartosz Chagar, who is some people are questioning her role as uh, in the House, as a House leader, and, and sort of playing a bit too much of a partisan role, I mean, was rewarded by having a, a, second, uh, uh, a second responsibility added to her portfolio in terms of small business. So, uh, you know, even, even people who are criticized aren't always uh, demoted in this case. And as we mentioned, some of them do bounce back. I, I remember in the early days of the Harper government, I mean, Ronna Ambrose uh, did not perform well in the environment portfolio and actually got removed from there. But she survived that and, and actually turned out to be a pretty strong member of the Harper cabinet as time went on. So I, I suppose if, if they like you, they may just think, well, maybe that was just the wrong job for that individual. That's true. And I mean, again, the, the degree of freedom that uh, the prime minister and the people around the prime minister have in making these appointments is limited in, in the fact that there's an expectation that there'll be someone from each province and that there'll be people, uh, you know, from the big cities and that there'll be rural and urban balance and, uh, you know, a variety of different constituencies expect to see themselves in cabinet. So, I mean, we had someone like Ian Brody, who was uh, Stephen Harper's chief of staff, saying that the prime minister had next to no chance, uh, no, no opportunity or choice in making his early cabinets when Harper was first elected, precisely because he had to balance off all these things. And, you know, his caucus wasn't as such as to allow that. Now, he was in a minority. Trudeau has a few more bodies around him. But there are a lot of people who actually can't be moved, or if they are moved, the people to replace them, you know, if, if they, if Lawrence Macaulay, for instance, from Prince Edward Island is seen as someone who might not be running and might be removed. Uh, but that probably limits uh, Trudeau from choosing one of the other members from Prince Edward Island. It's not a huge pool uh, uh, in terms of, of choice. So, I mean, that's a, another aspect that limits the capacity of, of the prime minister in these kinds of situations. So when they're sitting around the table, and I assume the prime minister is seeking advice on this and counsel from, from not just uh, other members of the party, but obviously the, the, the administrative part of the party, uh, there's a there's a political angle of this too, not just competency and can that person handle that portfolio. It's are they reelectable and will that help us in a certain area? Yeah, I mean, I I'd be inter- I haven't spoken to political uh, operatives lately. You know, I mean, there's a way in which campaigning has changed, and so having the regional chieftain uh, who has a local profile, you know, which is uh, you know uh, enhanced by the local news, may be something of the mid 20th century, right? And it continues to inform some of the thinking about choosing, you know, cabinet ministers, can they go and deliver votes in different parts of the country, or can they even just deliver, you know, a few seats in a region. Um, But it would seem to me that that aspect is maybe becomes a bit less uh, central 
as campaigning changes, and it may in fact be some other aspects of people's identities, whether they can speak to particular communities uh, that aren't geographic, but you know, a particular uh, religion, a particular cultural group, a particular you know set of lifestyle interests becomes more important in terms of the the coattail effects of ministers. But again, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to go and ask a few more questions about that. But campaigning has changed, and so some ways that we used to think about their electoral influence probably don't matter as much as they used to. I mean, does that mean we're getting away from the uh, quote unquote backroom boys? Uh, that used to really not necessarily pull the strings, but certainly have influence, like Dalton Camp did with uh, the Conservatives back in the day, uh, Keith Davey. Uh, there's a long list of them that we can talk about that weren't high-profile names, but they certainly were within those political parties, and they certainly had influence on a lot of those decisions. Well, I mean, I think if you know, we read the, the accounts of uh, the different governments, the chiefs of staff... Uh, and those key organizers around the leaders are still there. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about Jenny Byrne, who's, you know, close to Harper and is now close to Ford, or Jerry Butts, uh, you know, and around Jerry Butts, there's a number of other, you know, people who were fixers for the McGuinty government, uh, you know, and in different provinces, Dominic LeBlanc. So I think we still have those people playing a role in the electoral organization and strategy formation. Uh, it may be that the way they draw their incomes is a bit different. They aren't appointed senators in the way they used to be. They have consultancies and they charge, you know, parties for their their services. But I think those people are still around. Uh, but that, that's more sort of behind the curtain. You know, the the role of uh, promoting uh, cabinet ministers in some cases was that they had a higher profile and that you know that would sell in a particular region. You know, that David Sweet might be able, you know, although he wasn't a cabinet minister, but had he made been made one. You know, would have that enabled him to uh, push the conservative brand more strongly in the Tron- in the in the Hamilton area? If someone else got into cabinet, would that help? You know, deliver you know the Niagara Peninsula? Those kinds of uh, you know regional ministers maybe are, are less powerful than they used to be. Although, again, it probably varies across the country. You know, in a place like say Nova Scotia, you still have a kind of distinct local market in the media market, which allows these people to have a bigger profile. You know, in a place like the GTA, I think it's much harder for the ministers to, to develop that kind of profile in the current context. But as one of the, the I guess, the aspects of, of what they're going to consider here, uh, the, the geography still, I would think, play a part. I mean, you look at, the, for instance, uh, the, the Trudeau situation right now, uh, given the, the controversy he's had with the pipeline circumstances over the last couple of years, uh, it's, it's pretty clear that, uh, that the Liberals have fallen out of favor with an awful lot of people in B.C. Does he look to strengthen that now by maybe bringing somebody in to cabinet that, that, that may be able to lift their spirits and lift their popularity within that area? Yeah, I mean, he could attempt to do that. I mean, the question is, you know, how effective is that, right? Again, what sort of coattails do particular politicians have? So it would require having a particular person who had a capacity to, to sell the Liberals in a way that's different than the government would just sell itself. I mean, it's certainly important for him to continue to have a number of ministers from B.C., for instance, to say, look, there's people at the table who are making the decisions who represent you. And so the kind of, the very kind of, if you like, the descriptive representative role, the fact that you have people from these different provinces continues to be important both to give this kind of aura of legitimacy, but also to cut out the capacity. I mean, it's a very easy attack for any uh, opposition party to say, well, wait a second, look, there's no one from your province at the cabinet table. Clearly Mm -hmm. they've they've been ignoring you. And so the names of the people in that case aren't really that important. It's just the fact that they are from there and are seen then to be taking part in the making of the, the cabinet decisions. Well, and he's done that, obviously. I mean, he's got one minister from Edmonton. Uh, uh, the Liberals have never been strong in Alberta. Ralph Goodale, of course, is a Saskatchewan MP, 
uh, has been in cabinets uh, all the way back to the Chrétien years and the Martin years, and of course now in the Trudeau government as well. So they, they, I guess they still do actually look at that, that representation from certain areas to say, hey, yeah, you do have a voice in cabinet, and, and it's so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, and, and some of that is, you know, reflects the truth that these people holding these roles, uh, nevertheless, you know, brings those voices to the table. Although, I mean, as cabinet, you know, the, the sort of the surprise was that, uh, you know, when Stephen Harper was prime minister, the cabinet almost never met, at least as a body together, right? There was cabinet ministers, they had jobs, you know, they spoke with people at the center about what they should be doing. But collectively, you know, cabinet did not meet to make the decisions. Uh, I suspect there's a bit more in the way of meetings under Trudeau, but even there, it's very kind of centrally directed. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, Canadian voters, it still kind of sells with them this idea that if these people are cabinet ministers, then they are participating in making the the core decisions. You know, again, there's some there's some truth in it, and the, the role of playing the role of a minister of a particular ministry does give you a chance to set the direction of things. The prime minister obviously has to maintain the confidence of, of the different ministers, but uh, again, they, there are actually not that many uh, decisions being made by everyone sitting at the table, which is, you know, one of the weaknesses of Canadian governments that we've got prime ministers who may, in fact, not get a lot of voices uh, from particular parts of the country, and it can lead them to make decisions that are a bit, if you like, tone-deaf with respect to the demands of particular regional electorates. Well, it brings it into the question, though, Peter, about you know just the efficiency of, of that position. Uh, you know, do they really have power? I mean, it's, it's wonderful to say you are now part of so-and-so's cabinet, and, and with that, of course, as you say, a nice pay increase and, and some responsibilities, but how much responsibility? I mean, we're told that in those portfolios, oftentimes, it's the deputy minister, who's usually an appointee, that has the lion's share of responsibility for getting things done on a daily basis. And, and oftentimes, if you even watch question period, you've, you've got parliamentary assistants standing in for those ministers answering questions. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you have, par- you know, a cabinet is people being appointed to responsibilities where they have not necessarily a lot of knowledge of the specific, you know, issue area. They certainly don't know, you know, what's been going on in that large bureaucracy for the past 10 or 15 years in terms of the decisions that have been made or the priorities that have been put forward or even, you know, what the evidence says about what's a good policy or not. And so they rely very much on the administrative staff uh, to push files forward. I mean, effective ministers, nevertheless, are able to provide some, you know, direction to what the the deputy minister is doing in terms of what needs to be uh, prioritized, what sort of values uh, should be made a bit more or a bit less important in terms of how the ministry evaluates what it's doing. So, I mean, uh, you know, effective ministers do have roles uh, like that, as well as making decisions when there are problems and uh, scandals arising about how to solve them and deal with them in a manner that resolves them. So there's a variety of different roles that the minister plays, uh, you know, that gives rise at least to an internal evaluation about whether they're doing a good job or not, you know, which may have an impact on whether they they receive uh, promotion within cabinet. Although I think in the decisions that are going to be made this Wednesday by Trudeau, uh, there's very few people who seem to be uh, leaving, so there won't be a lot of new spots to be filled uh, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot in the way of promotion, but there will probably be a few changes made to try and enhance uh, the Liberal Party's uh, prospects going into the election, both in terms of giving some people new responsibilities, but then also making sure that he has strong uh, ministers in the files where he think might be hot between now and, and uh, next year. Is it, is it typical, Peter, for a, a leader like that to, as you say, within the broader uh, context of a cabinet, to have a, an inner circle of maybe two, three that that are confidants, that they do rely on? I mean, you mentioned that, for instance, Harper hardly ever had cabinet meetings, but I, I know we talked to Jim Flaherty an awful lot of the time, and John Baird seemed to be uh, pretty tight with Mr. Harper, and, and on and go, as you mentioned. Uh, and, and I would imagine Christia Freeland would fill that role in, in this Trudeau government now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's not uncommon, both uh, federally and in the provinces, to see something called, you know, a priority and plannings committee or something like that uh, of cabinet being formed, uh, either, you know, formally or informally. And uh, yes, it would be the prime minister and four or five of the most trusted uh, cabinet ministers would be sitting to really uh, sit and hash out some of the more difficult decisions that have to be made, uh, you know, collectively. I mean, the prime minister does that as well with uh, his or her own staff in terms of uh, advisors and pollsters and spin doctors in terms of how to be solving the day-to-day, you know, questions. But, uh, you know, a prime minister does have to go and know where their party is at, and that includes, you know, having a number of advisors who have can take the pulse of, you know, what do the other cabinet ministers think or, you know, what do the caucus members think. I mean, we, we do have this strange situation of a very highly concentrated set of powers around the prime minister you do have, you know, very, you know, successful prime ministers like Brian Mulroney saying their most important set of relationships were their caucus members, right? They, if they were going to make good decisions, they had to know that the people were behind them. And so, you know, we have this tension of kind of centralization of power uh, and, you know, these kind of not in cabinet, but even, you know, around the prime minister and maybe a small priorities and planning committee. Uh, but the people at the center there get, I think, even more and more paranoid to make sure, like, do we actually have the, the support of the people around us? And so they need the relays to sort of be able to say, yeah, the, the the MPs are supporting you. They think they can sell this in the next election. They're confident that this is good for the party and the country. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we see a tightening of a circle around the prime minister, uh, but then also a, a need to always be looking beyond that to know, well, do these decisions actually sell? Peter Grave, political science professor at Mac. Peter, thanks as always. Great talking with you today. You're welcome. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Obviously, all eyes are on Helsinki, Finland, uh, for the meeting between U.S. President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's on right now. It started a couple of hours ago, in fact. Uh, a lot of folks questioning why this meeting even has to take place in light of what has happened at the NATO meeting just a couple of days ago and uh, some of the things that the Russians have been, A, accused of, and B, seem to have confirmed that they have done uh, on the international stage. Uh, notwithstanding all of that, uh, Donald Trump seems to think this is a good idea. I think we will end up having an extraordinary relationship, I hope so. I've been saying, and I'm sure you've heard over the years, and as I campaign, that getting along with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, a good thing, not a bad thing. Notwithstanding the fact that uh, many of his NATO, well, I was going to say allies, I'm not so sure if they're allies anymore, uh, have tried to isolate Russia, obviously, because of their incursion into Crimea, their uh, problem with the Ukraine border, uh, the poisoning of, of course, former Russian spies. And, oh, did we bring up the meddling in the U.S. election? Yet they want to develop a friendship, at least it seems Donald Trump does. Joining us to talk about this is George Breckenridge, a political science professor emeritus from McMaster University, specializing in U.S. politics. George, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, Bill. Uh, the, the the contradictory statements from Trump and, and from other NATO allies are, are well documented at this stage right now. Uh, but I'll ask you the same question a lot of people are asking right now. What what does Trump seem to get out of this? What What's he looking for in a meeting with Putin? <laughs> well, I, I think the meeting, I mean, there's nothing wrong with meeting. But what's what's um, peculiar about this relationship is Trump has been so desperate, so desperate, and has to kind of try to sweep, you know, the way Trump operates uh, politically all, all along is he's got to, in order to build himself up, 
he's got to demean everybody else, and that's what he did at at, at NATO and 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 at, at the conference at the G7 in Canada. He's got to disparage everybody else and you know knock them down. That's where the real danger lies. In that that you know the sort of the, the mess he's making all around this. So which actually weakens his position in dealing with Moscow. He doesn't seem to realize that at all. So there's nothing wrong with going and meeting with, with Putin. Why he's so fixated on this and so desperate to be his friend, I mean, it's, that's another, another kind of question. But anything that gets in the way of that, including the, you know, the indictment of, of, the, of the, uh, the Russian military spies, um, and very, and very detailed, you know, the, the Russians must be wondering what else the Americans know about about what's going on there. Um, he, he he can't, you know, let that get in the way. He's desperate to get and to, to be pals with Putin. Now, why? You know, it's it's one thing. It's partly he, you know, he said during the campaign, you know, I alone can fix it. So he has this notion that he is this wonderful uh, negotiator, and there's lots and lots of evidence come out. But that, about his business dealings, where he's nothing of the sort in a lot of situations. But he has this delusional confidence in, in his own ability. He doesn't do any homework. He doesn't know the history. He doesn't appreciate the significance of NATO and things like that over the years and, and American leadership. And he doesn't seem to, all of that sort of bypasses him by. He's simply focused on this. But of course, the problem is going to be that given his delusional notions about not only his own powers of negotiating and uh, and changing things and uh, his lack of understanding of the whole thing, there's a certain reality sets in. You know, you run into a certain reality. The Obama administration, other administrations have tried to reset and get a new start in dealing with Russia. And very quickly, of course, the things deteriorated again because of Russian behavior. And so he's going to run into the same kind of problem again, you know. So this is this is a kind of high point, you know, where he can believe momentarily that he's established this new relationship. They're holding a press conference shortly, and it'll be interesting to see what you know if Trump has given away anything, you know, has has, has conceded to something to Putin or not, which could be really problematic. But basically, the Russian behavior is not going to change. You know, they have very, you know, Putin is a, is a very, very, very experienced, wily character who knows exactly what he's doing and what he can get away with. And he's in a defensive position. Russia is nothing like what it used to be, which is part of, you know, his, what he's trying to build it back up again. So he's, he's basically in a weak position. I mean, he's come off a great triumph for the World Cup, which, which was the best ever, you know, and beautifully run. But basically, Russia is in a weak position, struggling to get back struggling to get back to the glory days of the Soviet Union when they really were a world power. So he's, you know, they're really not in a very strong position. Um, but but with that, George, I mean, Trump is emboldening him by doing this. Well, I mean, of course he is. Because the sanctions that, uh, that NATO had instilled upon Russia after right. the Crimea incident and the Ukraine... Uh, we're, are, we know are having an effect on, on the Russian economy. Well, we understand right. that to be true. The Russian and, and economy the, is very weak. 
you know, it's very weak, and there's all, you know, the population is declining. It's not a healthy country in a lot of ways. But they haven't withdrawn from Crimea. They're still threatening the Ukraine border and Latvia. Well, that's and, right. and now you've got Donald Trump at the G7 meeting saying, look, you should ease those uh, those sanctions. Oh, by the way, you should let him back into the G7, make know, it the G8 I again. I know. He but, seems oblivious to the reality of what's going on well, in the he world. he is. He is. He doesn't, he doesn't listen to people. He doesn't do the homework. You know, he was holed up in Trump Tower most of his life. He, he's paid no attention to the reality of the outside world. And so he, he's able to maintain, the, or he needs to maintain, these delusions about himself and about the way the world is set up. But as I say, you know, the world is not set up like that. He's not a good negotiator. And so very quickly, or, or sooner or later, he, he, you know, everything is going to run into this reality check that he's not going to be able to do very much. And I'll uh, get very much done, just like, you know, his meeting with, with uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, nothing much has come of that. It doesn't look like much will come of it, you know. But the Putin, the, the, fix, the fixation with Putin is, um, is the, the crush on Putin is really the most peculiar thing, which, of course, is what has, has, has fed the suspicions back in America that, you know, there, were, there, might, there might well have been collusion. Well, let, the the, let's talk about that, because we've taken to the next step. And this is what I find flabbergasting about this. And since 1945, since the beginning of the Cold War, essentially, uh, the United States, along with their NATO allies, has always taken a, a guarded stance against Russia. Yes, yeah. there has been communication, yeah. and it, it improved somewhat, especially after the wall came down and uh, and we've seen some elements of that, and of course Russia being allowed into the G8 at some point. Yeah. But, but it was always with the old uh, Don Corleone thing, you know, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. In other right. words, we'll keep him here, but we don't trust him. And, and that was, I, I think that, that lack of trust, I think, was verified by what he's done, of course, with Ukraine and with others. Yeah, and, and the fact that now 12 indictments have come down uh, about them having meddled in the U.S. election. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unfathomable, George, that a United States president would have that knowledge that the Russians hacked in and tried to influence the election, yeah. and he hasn't even brought it up. Well, he said he was going to ask him. What's to ask? It's already been shown that they did. He's going to be asked about that at the press conference for sure. It'll be interesting to see what he says about that. But you see, he sees, well, all along, he's he's been very defensive about his own election. It was very narrow, you know, contrary to what he keeps saying. It's very narrow. It was suspect in some respects because of the, the the increasing evidence of Russian meddling. And so he's been very defensive about that. He's never wanted to admit this is why it's a witch hunt. You know, there's nothing real. There's no collusion. There's no, you know, it's, it's, so and then now he finds it's getting in the way of his, you know, his finally getting to meet one-on-one with, have a summit with, with Putin. And just the week before, three days before, you get this very, very detailed indictment. I mean, and this is the second set of indictments in dealing with Russians. And he's tried desperately trying to kind of sweep that aside in order partly because it doesn't fit with his, his narrative about his own election. Well, this is, this is, I think, one of the elements that we need to talk about here. I mean, for instance, I mean, the Republicans and, and obviously the, the Trumpians yeah. have, have, for instance, always criticized Obama from leading from behind and he didn't have any backbone yeah. but, and, and said, why didn't he do something about this? Because the Russian hacking was going on in the last part of his administration. Yeah. But yeah. he did. He did. He he dismissed and fired well, twelve also, Russian diplomats and booted them out of the country. He, he had a face-to-face confrontation with Putin at the G20 and said, right. "Knock it off." I mean, and even then, Obama didn't know the extent of this. He just knew that it was happening. Well, he right. did. He, he did he, confront he, Putin about it, which but, is more but, than Trump has done. But he also asked for the Republican leaders in Congress 
to join him in a joint statement, and they refused to do it. Yeah, you know, they just and as you say, they, nobody knew the extent of it or, the, or exactly how so much of it had been done, and so the uh, the indictment of the of the twelve Russian military spies is really quite stunning because it's in so much detail. As I say, people have pointed out, you know, the Russians now realized how much America knows about what's been going on. You know, and so what else do they know? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and so that, that really put, ought to push Putin right back because the, the Americans are really on to this. But just as Kim Jong-un wanted to have a face-to-face with Trump because it would empower him and make him yeah, look yeah. like, like a, what, he's a player on the international right. stage. And, and Kim took him for a ride on this. I mean, he oh, said, absolutely. you know, he promised, he, he agreed to everything Trump said and has done nothing. As a matter of fact, they're still, they're building up their, their but yeah, but he got right. a deal out of it. because that's, that's right. Nothing nothing so far. Well, uh, and Putin's doing the exact same thing. I mean, people tend to forget, that. this is the Russian menace. This is the red menace that people talked about for generations. And yeah. now all of a sudden, Trump wants to make friends with this guy. Uh, and you really have to wonder what his, what Trump that meaning, is, what his intentions really are here. Yeah, well, that's right. I think, you know, it partly comes back to this this notion that he, you know, he has this great power to read people and to negotiate with people. And, he, and but also he's, he's, he's on a very personal level. I mean, he said before, you know, well, he says nice things about me, so I'll say nice, nice things about him. I want to be his friend. You know, it's, it's this personal need that, that, that is the heart of everything that Trump does. You know, this is, feeds his delusions, it feeds his insecurities, and, and makes him sort of a, shut out the, the reality of the world around him. He has this need to be, to be liked and to be admired and to be, and to be friends with these kind of people. And he sees these various dicta- dictator types, you know, as much more likely, to, much more uh, to his liking than the messy kind of, you know, politics of, of alliances and all kinds of stuff like that. But, and again, you have to wonder what, what's going to be talked about here, what's going to be agreed upon. Well, the press conference should be very interesting, I think, yeah. Well, exactly, uh, simply because of that. And, and, and I know that some people are saying, well, he, he won a big victory with North Korea because they're not testing missiles anymore. They don't need to. They've already tested no, them, but right. now they're building up their arsenal. Exactly. I mean, the United States doesn't test missiles anymore either, but their arsenal's strong. Well, exactly. That, and, but, right. and Kim got something out of it because Trump promised that he was going to withdraw all the military exercises in South Korea. That's right. Much to the shock of the South Korean government. Yeah. So you have to wonder what Trump's going to give up in a situation like well, this and what he expects see, to get in return. Good, that's going to be the big question. What is Trump, is Trump giving away anything to, to Putin? Uh, that, there will be a lot of questions on that, exactly. And, um, you know, or it may just be fairly vapid, you know, nothing much, you know, just good feelings and all the It may just evaporate a bit, you know. So it'll be very interesting to see the, the press conference, what, what, uh, what both of them say particularly Trump, what Trump says, because he's been very much pushed on the defensive. You know, after the chaos, he, the completely unnecessary chaos and confusion that he created around NATO and his trip to Britain and that sort of thing, all of that's completely unnecessary. But it's his way of sort of flattening the ground around him so he looks taller, you know. And, and, and everything was, anything that gets in the way of this, what you know, this summit that he's been working on for so long that he he needs so much uh, had to be kind of swept aside, and so. It, but but again, what substance comes out of this? Uh, it's not clear. The only thing 
is he going to give Putin anything? I, I'm not sure he is, you know, That's because I think he's really been put on the defensive. And the, the indictment of the, of, the, of the Russian spies, of course, also puts him enormously on defensive because this is by far the most detailed you know, and, and, and incontrovertible evidence that there has been uh, to the extent of Russian meddling. Well, I mean, Trump's already started doing his bidding for him by, you know, suggesting he be allowed back into the G8 to, 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 well, in that not, context that's not gonna happen. <laughs> and, and relieve the sanctions. But you got to wonder, uh, you're right, George, to put this in context. I mean, do the, do the other NATO members, and I, I hesitate to call them U.S. allies anymore. I, I, think, I think they still are allied with the United oh, States, yeah. not oh, so much yeah. with Trump oh, yeah. himself, though. How can they trust him? How can they talk about confidential well, things about national security, well, knowing they, that he's going to go and talk to Putin about it next week? Well, it's true, but he's dealing with everybody. I mean, nobody knows what he's going to say next. And nobody knows what, I mean, nobody knows how to take, should you take seriously what he says? A lot of it is just venting and stupid stuff, you know. But on the other hand, he's president of the United States, so potentially, particularly in, in dealing with foreign policy, he's much more limited in domestic policy. But in, in foreign policy, you know, he, he can have a, you know, he can have a negative effect in all kinds of ways. And so they don't, nobody know. I mean, if you take his visit to Britain and his, you know, trashing of Theresa May and then praising, what? And you know, how are you supposed to make anything of that? Well, you wonder about this. I mean, Andrei Kutunov, who's the head of the RIAC, which is a Moscow think tank that uh, yeah. talks about foreign policy, right. says this is a big victory for Putin because the rest of the world is starting to close in on him because of all the things that Russia has done. Right. And by meeting with, with, with Putin, Trump is essentially saying all that stuff, no big deal. Don't well, exactly, worry about it. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, he, he refuses to take seriously or pay attention to... Uh, the Ukraine situation, which, as you say, was really the start of the most recent deterioration and a very serious breach of international law. And, uh, and so Russia, while it's, it's not in a strong position, not in a strong, not really in a terribly strong position internationally, it is in relation to Europe. You know, it really is a threat to the Baltic countries and the, and, and the other former, East, what we used to call Eastern Europe countries, mm-hmm. are still nervous about Russia. You know, so in, in Europe, this is a real threat, potentially, well, which, which they very much have to defend against. And they've always depended on the American support, on the, this mutual defense arrangement uh, to keep Russia within its bounds. We'll see what happens at the uh, the media conference after this meeting today and going yeah, forward. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. George, thanks as always. Great talking okay, with you again today. You're welcome, Bill. Yeah. George Breckenridge, uh, political science professor emeritus at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.